In the early hours of the 5th of August 1962, emergency services were gathered at 12305 5th Helena Drive in Los Angeles. The owner of the house, the reason the medical staff were there, had only lived in the house for six months. It was the first home she'd ever independently purchased and there were still boxes waiting to be unpacked. She would be declared dead at the scene and the announcement of her death would send shockwaves around the world. Even today, her death is still heavily discussed, spawning all kinds of conspiracy theories. We'll probably never really know what happened, but perhaps what is much sadder is that we will never really know the woman whose life ended in such tragic circumstances. Welcome to Her Story, the podcast that delves into the lives of the women you most likely have heard of, but you may not know their real story. I'm your host, Megan Musgrove, and today we'll be exploring Marilyn Monroe and her story. Before we begin, I'm sure there are some elements of the story you already know about, but I just wanted to advise of possible trigger warnings, as there'll be several mentions of miscarriage and also references of suicide and domestic violence. Marilyn Monroe. Everyone has their own image of the woman who embodies that name. But that's kind of the point. Marilyn was a canvas for people to project their own images and fantasies on. Carefully created by the woman herself, and then honed by the studio system at a time when dumb blondes were seen as disposable and easily replaceable, she was not meant to be just a woman. Sixty years after her death, people are still fascinated with her despite not knowing the real Marilyn. Her face, frozen in history at its peak, never having the chance to grow old, is plastered over home decor and souvenirs, with little thought to the fact there was a real person behind the facade. In J. William Weatherby's Conversations with Marilyn, she says of herself, Marilyn Monroe became a burden, a, what do you call it, an albatross. People expect so much of me, I sometimes hated them. It was too much of a strain. Born Norma Jean Baker in 1926, she never knew her father. Her mother, Gladys Baker, was a film cutter, and one of the theories is that her father was a studio exec who took to the young woman and then abandoned her when she was pregnant. Due to Gladys' situation as a single mother, she needed to keep working, and so her daughter, Norma Jean, would spend her childhood being shuttled around foster homes, her mother paying other families to look after the child. As Marilyn would say in my story, the closest thing we'll ever have to a Marilyn Monroe autobiography, the families with whom I had lived had one thing in common, a need for $5. For a brief period, there was something that resembled stability, when Gladys was able to buy a house and Norma Jean began to live with her mother. She was still without a father though. Norma Jean would be shown a photo of a handsome man with a thin moustache and told he was her father. She was never given a name but decided he looked like Clark Gable and so the young girl began imagining that Hollywood movie star Clark Gable was her father. Stable family life did not last long. In 1934, Gladys suffered what was termed as a nervous breakdown and sent to an institution. It is likely Gladys suffered from schizophrenia and that mental health issues were prevalent throughout their family history, with Gladys's father and grandmother also spending their final days in an institution. Following this, Norma Jean became a ward of the state. Her childhood was spent either in orphanages or being passed around various foster homes, where most saw her as a monthly paycheck and she was treated with indifference at best. At worst, she suffered abuse at the hands of the men who were meant to care for her. One of the most common misconceptions was that Marilyn was just some dumb blonde. Norma Jean's school records would contradict this, and throughout her adult life, she always had an eagerness to learn. 
She was a lot cleverer than she was ever given credit for and was never given the kind of chance that would have benefited her. The foster home cycle only ended when a rushed marriage was arranged when she was just 16 to prevent her from going back into the system. It took place before America joined World War II with her husband Jim Doherty then signing up and shipping out. Back at home, Norma Jean began working in a munitions factory and it was here she was discovered by a photographer for an army magazine, setting into motion a modelling career. This in turn led to the idea that she might be able to make a career in film, something her husband did not support, leading to a divorce as she pursued her new career. One incorrect assumption surrounding Marilyn seems to be that she just exploded onto the movie scene as an overnight success. This is far from the truth. In her slow rise to fame, she moved from modelling into receiving her first screen contract with 20th Century Fox in 1946, despite the head of Fox, Daryl Zanuck, never really understanding what the big deal with this woman was. She was signed to a six-month contract so she wouldn't be signed to a rival studio, and this is when she took the name Marilyn Monroe, Monroe being her mother's maiden name. Baker was the name from her first marriage that had ended in divorce. And the process of becoming the woman we picture as Marilyn begins. She had several bit parts this time, but nothing of real note and her contract was not renewed in 1947. As an up-and-coming actress, she worked hard. The $75 she made per week from her first studio contract went towards voice and dance lessons. Things got even harder when she was dropped from Fox, and she would go back to taking modelling jobs and getting odd jobs around movie studios. Eventually, she would land a contract at Columbia Pictures in 1948, but this would end in 1949 with no discernible screen credits to her name. She returned to modelling again, but she wasn't earning enough to live. She'd missed a car payment and needed to make $50 to get the car back. Without the car, she couldn't travel to studios, seek out auditions or basically try to find work in any way. At the same time, she received a call from a photographer she had previously worked with called Tom Kelly, who was asking if she'd be interested in posing for some tasteful nudes for a calendar. The whole shoot was above board. Kelly's wife was sitting in to add legitimacy to it, and after the photos were taken, Marilyn took her $50, paid to have her car released, and never gave the photos another thought. Just after this shoot, Marilyn would meet Johnny Hyde, the vice president of the William Morris Talent Agency. He saw something in Marilyn and set out to make her a star. But this is where we also enter murky territory as to the men in Marilyn's life at this stage and how much she may have paid in favours for them to help advance her career. There are suggestions she played the part of mistress to several high players in the Hollywood scene, including Johnny Hyde, despite him being 31 years her senior. It's also just as likely that some or all of these are just rumour in how much she actually paid them back. Her own words on Johnny Hyde in My Story adamantly deny there was anything more than a friendship. She appreciated the fact that he treated her with kindness and acknowledges he was in love with her, but she states, I wish with all my heart I could love him back. It's possible in Hyde she simply saw a kind of father figure that she'd always been searching for. Hyde would leave his wife and repeatedly offered to marry Marilyn, stating it wouldn't be a long marriage as he had a heart condition and when he died she would be rich. Marilyn refused. She knew she would never be taken seriously in Hollywood if she was the widow of Johnny Hyde. She would always look to the world to be some kind of gold digger. But Hyde held true to his word and managed to get Marilyn two small yet memorable roles in 1950. 
All About Eve and The Asphalt Jungle. Both films were critical successes, and despite the legendary talent within these films, Marilyn found a way to be noticed. Hyde would also negotiate a new seven-year contract at 20th Century Fox, her first studio that dropped her back in 1947. Hyde would die of a heart attack a few days later, leaving Marilyn devastated and alone as she navigated this new path. Yet despite these two high-profile films, Fox was still not giving her the kind of roles to make her a star. She had small parts in movies over the next couple of years, and although they weren't the kind of parts to cement her star status, that didn't entirely matter. The public were beginning to notice her. She stood out in these roles, no matter how small or the quality of the film. Marilyn was active in Hollywood at a time when photo magazines were at a new level of popularity, creating increased demand for attractive women to feature in these magazines. This meant there was a demand for Marilyn. She also began dating baseball legend Joe DiMaggio around this time, which whipped the press into a frenzy at the celebrity pairing. It would be in 1952 that Marilyn would experience the event that would firmly place her in the hearts and minds of the public. It was the kind of scandal that would have destroyed any other actress, but she was clever enough to use it to her advantage and to help make her career the one we now associate with Marilyn Monroe. The nude photos Marilyn had taken for her calendar several years before, the ones she agreed to do so she could afford to get her car back, had resurfaced. They originally appeared in a 1951 calendar, and again in 1952. By this time, she was more well-known, so the reappearance suddenly raised questions about the resemblance between this calendar model and the Hollywood starlet. When Fox got wind of the rumours, they asked Marilyn directly if it was her in the photos, and she replied honestly, it was. The potential scandal was unprecedented. The photos were widely available, which was something that had never occurred previously with any high-profile or rising star. This was also a time when American audiences were still extremely conservative in their entertainment preferences. Fox attempted damage control, where Marilyn was told to deny it was her and to simply say it was a coincidence this girl in the photo looked like her. Marilyn told the reporter interviewing her the truth, that it was her, that there was nothing untoward with the situation as the photographer's wife had been there and she'd been desperate for the money to get her car back. And the public accepted her reasoning for it. They sympathised with her for the situation she found herself in and appreciated the honesty. She was suddenly front page of every newspaper and remained Fox's hottest property. They finally had to take notice and put her in leading roles because the public wanted to see her. By 1953, her trademark look had been fully embraced and thanks to film roles in Niagara, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and How to Marry a Millionaire, she became Fox's most bankable star. But not bankable enough for them to pay her what she actually deserved. In Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, she was paid her contract rate of $1,500 per week, while her co-star Jane Russell earned somewhere between $100,000 and $200,000, despite both playing joint leads and Marilyn being the blonde referred to in the title. It was around this time that reports began to circulate about Marilyn becoming difficult. If you're listening to this podcast in the first instance, you probably already know what that means when a woman is labelled difficult, and there's something much bigger at play here. Marilyn began to suffer debilitating bouts of anxiety, which led to her staying in her dressing room when she was supposed to be on set. At a time when mental health was not prioritised generally, especially involving women, this did not go down well with the money-obsessed film industry, who saw these delays as eating into their profits. During Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Marilyn did have an ally in Jane Russell, 
In her own autobiography, Russell describes Marilyn as, quote, very shy and very sweet and far more intelligent than people gave her credit for. When she needed coaxing out of her dressing room, it was Russell who would stand in the doorway saying, come on blondie, let's go. And she would. The dumb blonde sex pot roles may have helped launch her career, but also led to typecasting. The studio did not want to mess with a lucrative, for them, formula, and also did not take Marilyn seriously, despite being their highest grossing actress. She wanted to break away from these roles for something more substantial. She was denied, even suspended from Fox for breaking a contract after refusing to take roles which she thought did not do her justice. Along with a desire to be taken seriously, there was also an underlying need to be seen and to be loved, a void her fame could not fill. But the Marilyn persona created issues here too. Her second husband, Joe DiMaggio, fell for the sexy Marilyn, but came to find he didn't like that persona being on display to the world. She would marry Joe DiMaggio during her suspension from Fox in 1954. After being told she was a star in a musical called The Girl in the Pink Tights, she decided the part was demeaning, to which DiMaggio agreed. But this feels more like his issue of Marilyn being ogled in roles as opposed to him simply supporting her decision and her feelings. Instead, he suggested they get married and she accompany him on a baseball tour of Japan. Fox suspended her for rejecting the role as she was under their contract after all and Marilyn DiMaggio married 10 days later. Even from the start of the marriage, there were signs it was problematic. When Joe DiMaggio originally sought out Marilyn, it was because he had seen her in a short baseball dress in a photo. He then arranged a meeting. For him, that was perfectly fine, but he had an issue with her displaying her body if it meant other people may see it. On their trip to Japan, which essentially became their honeymoon, Marilyn was approached by the US Army, asking if she would like to perform for the troops in Korea, to which she agreed. If you've ever seen footage of her singing in front of the soldiers, she looks so glorious and so happy. DiMaggio was not happy. When they married, DiMaggio was expecting Marilyn to become a housewife, but she didn't want to give up acting. She even made peace with Fox, who let her agree to take on a role she actually wanted, working with Billy Wilder in The Seven Year Itch. That film role is the one we all know Marilyn by. Even if you've never seen the movie, you know the iconic scene of her in the white dress standing over the subway grate. The scene was ultimately filmed on a soundstage in the studio, but it was first filmed on the streets of New York. Conveniently, the press were alerted as to what was going on and were ready with their cameras as Marilyn shot take after take for two hours in her white dress as it blew up around her waist. DiMaggio joined the crowds of people who went out to watch, but he only stayed for a while. He waited for her back at the hotel room, and once she returned, there were reports of shouting coming from their room, and the next day, Marilyn was spotted with visible bruises. That was not the first instance where people had witnessed bruising on her skin during her relationship with DiMaggio. Marilyn would officially announce their separation not long after. Moving away from her personal heartache, Marilyn began to take control of her professional life. In 1955, she was able to broker a deal with Fox that would allow her to choose her roles and to also produce them, now that Fox could no longer ignore her box office worth. She set up her own production company, something that would help set in motion the collapse of the studio system over the following years. It might sound strange to think of today, when big movie stars have so much power of their roles and tend to produce their own films through their own production companies as well as starring in them, but in 1955 this was completely unheard of. 
The studio system was in full effect, and if you weren't under contract with the studio, as we saw with Marilyn in her early career years, you weren't likely to make it. But in exchange for your film contract and the studio making you a star, they had complete control of you. This was a time when they would control your image, tell you who to date, how to dress and what films to be in. Marilyn, having complete faith in her own star power, was now making an incredible move and could make her own calls about her career. She really had good instincts, as she was the one who created the Marilyn persona in the first place, not the studio. They were just conveniently placed to capitalise on her creation. The first film her production company would produce was Bus Stop. It was a chance for Marilyn to showcase herself as a serious actress. She was embedded in the actor's studio at this time, run by Lee and Paula Strasberg, and it would be Paula who would become Marilyn's personal acting coach. In Bus Stop, she still looks like the Marilyn we all picture, platinum blonde hair, curves, but she shows a more three-dimensional side, playing a character with more depth. The film itself was a hit at the box office, confirming that audiences still wanted to see Marilyn. After the filming of Bus Stop ended, Marilyn would then cement herself in a relationship with the man who would become her third husband, Arthur Miller. The celebrated playwright seemed to fit in with this new chapter of Marilyn's life, one where she was striving to be seen as more serious in her craft and not just a dumb blonde. He was supposed to be someone who could help feed Marilyn's natural intelligence and desire to learn. But much like DiMaggio, the version of Marilyn he wanted was not the real woman. Ultimately, he would just become another man who didn't take her seriously. They would marry in a quiet ceremony and immediately head off to England where Marilyn would begin filming the second film her production company had chosen to produce, The Prince and the Showgirl. She hired Laurence Olivier to direct and co-star with her, a well-respected actor and director to give her the kind of credibility she was craving. Originally delighted to be starring with her, the relationship soon turned frosty when it became apparent that all he wanted Marilyn to do was stand around and look pretty, not taking her seriously, something she did not appreciate. The entire shoot became difficult. Marilyn had suffered for several years now with sleeping issues, and having become dependent on sleeping pills, she would then struggle to wake up in time for filming. When she was on set, her anxiety would set in and she would forget her lines. Scenes required multiple takes, and when she did get her lines right, she would immediately turn to Paula Strasberg for validation, something Olivier did not appreciate. Yet if you watch The Prince and the Showgirl, which honestly, it feels like a bit of a slog to watch if you do decide to, Marilyn is the best thing in it. She acts Olivier off the screen. The role would lead to her being nominated for a BAFTA. During the shoot, it wasn't just the filming that was causing issues. Despite her career being at its highest point, her confidence was at its lowest. She looked to her husband Miller for support, but instead discovered notes he wrote about her, using her as inspiration for a character in a screenplay he was writing. The notes were not flattering. It describes his disappointment at realising his wife was only mortal. It was around this time Marilyn would find out she was pregnant, only to lose the baby shortly after. For someone already suffering a fragile mental state, the miscarriage on top of the rest of the stresses she would experience would create more damage. For a woman who was held up as the epitome of femininity, Marilyn suffered many issues with her reproductive system. She suffered from severe endometriosis, which affected her fertility. At this point in her life, all she wanted to do was become a mother, yet it seemed her body was not capable of carrying a child. 
One of the most heartbreaking stories I've ever heard about Marilyn was how after suffering another miscarriage, she took to sitting in playgrounds in New York, watching children play, sometimes asking the mothers if she could just hold their children, desperate for the one thing her star power and fame could not bring her. After The Prince and the Showgirl, Marilyn took a two-year break, something that was much needed, only going back to work because Miller told her they needed the money. He himself had not been churning out much in the way of writing during this time, seemingly suffering because his movie star wife was not proving to be the muse he wanted. She would take a role that would become one of her most famous, in Sun Like It Hot. The film is still a classic, one of the best comedies ever made, but the shoot was fraught. Multiple takes were needed with Marilyn's anxiety at a high, unable to remember her lines or just not feeling good about what she was shooting. She was also frequently late to the set, creating delays. Yet, if you watch the film, she's still excellent in it and she looks incredibly beautiful. She's the epitome of the Marilyn we all think of, which only makes me sadder. She could create such amazing work even with all the troubles behind her. I just can't help thinking what she could have done with her career if she had a team around her who actually had her best interests at heart and people she could genuinely rely on. At the end of shooting Some Like a Hot, Marilyn found herself pregnant again, but again she suffered a miscarriage. Her final release film was in 1961. The script of The Misfits was written by Arthur Miller, intended to be a love letter to his wife. It was also intended to be the thing that could save their marriage. On paper, it should have been a shining moment in Marilyn's career. A screenplay written by one of the great playwrights of the era, enabling her to take on a role with depth and substance. It was directed by John Huston, one of the greatest directors of the era, who had previously directed Marilyn in the Asphalt Jungle all those years before. And her co-star was Clark Gable, the legendary king of Hollywood, who had also been the man Marilyn pictured as her father. What ended up happening was far from ideal. Miller used Marilyn's own words, things she had told him in private, to create the insecurities of the film's character, Rosalind. Marilyn felt betrayed. To add to the tension on set, Miller continued to rewrite sections of the film, only giving the new pages to Marilyn the night before. Unable to learn them in time, her already present anxiety only increased, and she would end up taking more sleeping pills to get rest, which created a vicious cycle of not being awake on time to get to set when she was supposed to. Production then halted, with director Houston stating that Marilyn's issues with pills had become so bad she needed medical treatment. It is possible, however, that production shut down for a week due to Houston's own gambling problem, wherein he owed a lot of money to two casinos and there was no money left in the budget to cover this. He then had to approach the studio for more money to bail him out of trouble. Marilyn and her dependency on pills just provided a convenient alternative story to put out into the world. After the arduous shoot wrapped, the Monroe-Miller marriage officially ended, but the tragedy continued in the week after shooting ended. Clark Gable would die of a heart attack. Marilyn received the blame for creating a stressful working environment. In fact, Gable, no longer a young man who had already suffered one heart attack before, had insisted on doing all his own stunts. The Misfits would be the final film of both Clark Gable and Marilyn Monroe. This period following The Misfits became a dark time for Marilyn. Her career was considered to be in a downward arc, and she was also dealing with the fallout of the end of her third marriage. At the suggestion of her psychiatrist, she would allow herself to be admitted to hospital for treatment. 
What ended up happening was that she was institutionalised against her will. For a woman very aware of the mental health issues running through her family, it must have been a terrifying time. She was under the kind of surveillance she did not require. She was being treated as dangerous and kept isolated. After about a week, she was able to get word to Joe DiMaggio, who immediately travelled to see her and make sure she was released. She was then able to move to a hospital more in line with the rest and recuperation she actually needed, as opposed to being locked away in what was essentially a cell. In this post-treatment period, Marilyn joined the LA party scene, which included a brief fling with Frank Sinatra, and led to a connection with the Rat Pack. It was through Rat Pack member Peter Lawford, who was married to Patricia Kennedy, that Marilyn would begin her association with the Kennedys. There is so much information flying around about Marilyn and the Kennedys that it would be impossible to cover in a single episode. But I also don't want to delve into it. This podcast is to focus on Marilyn as a person, and the Kennedy Association relies too much on murky gossip and rumours that have only grown and changed over the years. From what I have gleaned from research is that if Marilyn did have an affair with JFK, it was brief at best. And JFK was notorious for having affairs, so it feels unfair that Marilyn has to bear the brunt of that association. If she did have a longer relationship with a Kennedy, it appears to be more likely that it was Bobby Kennedy. In 1962, Marilyn would begin filming her final movie, though the movie would never be finished. The film, Something's Gotta Give, co-starred Dean Martin. It wasn't a film Marilyn wanted to make, but she owed Fox a film and she needed to work. Things were not good at Fox at this time. The studio was basically bleeding money thanks to the filming of Cleopatra, the film Elizabeth Taylor was being paid $1 million to make. For context, Marilyn had made $300,000 for The Misfits, despite being one of the biggest stars of the day. Sadly, there was never a point in her career where she was actually paid what she was worth. The filming for Something's Gotta Give started positively, but early on, Marilyn became ill, and after filming what they could around her, there was a delay. She would return to work and continue to work up to a planned break that had already been agreed on. It was a break that would allow her to head to New York to sing for JFK as part of his birthday celebrations. But because the shoot was behind schedule and Fox's finances were not in a good place, they decided to scrap it altogether, as that would be the most cost-effective decision. Once again, Marilyn was a convenient excuse and was already on her way to New York for the agreed time off when Fox drew up papers stating they were threatening to sue her for breach of contract and that she'd run off to New York without permission to do so. Marilyn performed in New York as planned. We all know that iconic rendition of Happy Birthday. She would head back to work the next day and for the next couple of weeks generally kept a professional and shot what needed to be shot, even with the threat of the breach of contract still in the air. However, Fox eventually made good on their threat and fired her from the production in early June. They attempted to recast the role, but Dean Martin flat out refused to work with anyone other than Marilyn. Fox then rethought their decision, agreeing to rehire Marilyn and to resume filming a few months later. Between the June when she was fired from the picture and the talks resuming to restart soon after, and her death in August, Marilyn was incredibly proactive with her career. She gave many interviews, arranged photo shoots to increase her publicity, and began to make arrangements to acquire rights for films she was interested in making going forward. But we all know the story doesn't end with Marilyn revitalising her career and going on to live the happy life she deserved. On the 5th of August 1962, news of Marilyn's shock death spread around the world. 
Still, people are fascinated by what may have happened. Did she end her own life deliberately? Were the Kendys involved? Was the Mafia involved? These conspiracies exist because people cannot believe that such a larger-than-life, beautiful figure could be gone from the world because of what seems like the most likely, but also the most mundane answer, of an accidental overdose. What these theories tend to forget is that the heart of this story is a woman who never felt like she belonged, who had natural acting ability but was overwhelmed with self-doubt that she spent years in a vicious cycle of medication to deal with her issues. At the heart of it is still a young Norma Jean who never felt the kind of love she deserved to be given. If you have yet to view one of Marilyn's films, I highly recommend starting with the 1953 classic Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Along with the iconic musical number Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, the movie is a great vehicle to showcase Marilyn's natural comedic talents. This is one of the dumb blonde roles where her character does have more depth. On the surface, Lorelai Lee comes across as a gold-digging, not very bright woman, but there's clearly more going on. She's smart enough to know how to play the men around her, and using her own personal weapons, she gives herself the best chances in life. It also helps that the film is good fun, showcasing strong female friendship and has a wonderful timeless feel to it. It's the chance to view Marilyn in a way she probably would have wanted to be viewed, not as just some commodity, but as a talented performer. Thank you for listening to this episode of Her Story. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts from, share on social media, or just tell a friend. The podcast is written and narrated by me. It's produced by John Ward. And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at underscore herstorypodcast underscore. I will link to it in the show notes. On the Instagram, you'll find hints for future episodes. And I'd also love for you to get in touch if you have any suggestions for anyone that you want to hear in a future episode. And if I haven't already got them scheduled in to appear, I'd love to look at including them. Thanks. If you're interested in learning more about Marilyn Monroe, there's a list of reading materials and additional sources in the show notes, along with some film recommendations if you fancy an evening with some classic cinema. The podcast will be back next week with episode three in the Golden Age of Hollywood series for Her Story. See you next week. <laughs>